is about recognizing the library as an important local hub, a place where people can come together in all kinds of ways and do, this being one of them. There are other groups that meet in, it and matter, um, coffee groups, I run a writing group here, etc., etc. Um, so we're trying to make it, people aware that the library is a resource we don't want to lose um, because it offers so much more than people realize it does. And it is a neutral space. It's not a space that belongs to anybody. Um, so um, that's one of the reasons for running these sessions, to highlight that to people. Sometimes people are coming who have been to the library for years or don't reckon to use the library at all. And we also get people to come in um, to talk about their perspective on the local community, on Holt, on Norfolk, why they're here, why they came here, um, and to get different sorts of people doing that. And Norman's come, kind of come to agree to, to add his perspective to that. Those are going up as recordings on a website. So if you've got a few hours to spare, there are about nine hours up there already. Um, but uh, really interesting, the different talks, as I think people would, will um, concur. Now, one thing Jane didn't mention that we're supposed to mention is that if there were a fire, the fire exit's just over there or at the front, and there's a green button to get out on. So, so you are in charge of... Yeah. <laughs> so if there's a spontaneous combustion during the discussion, you'll know how to get out. Um, yeah, and we would finally just to say, um, if you felt like making a donation on the way out towards the library, then obviously that's very welcome. But it is a free event, so there's no compulsion there, just if that's something you felt like doing. So, Norman, thank you very much for coming. Pleasure. Um, uh, we were worried because I know you've cancelled some, had to cancel something else locally, a U3A meeting. And, uh, when was that? Um, Sometime coming in October, I believe. Oh, really? So, and, uh, <laughs> sure th that we weren't sure. Yeah. So, um, and uh, luckily the um, conference was last week, so that, you weren't involved in that. But this is um, very much about you, rather than just your politics. Obviously, that's going to be part of this, but. Um, there are other opportunities to discuss that, and I think this is an opportunity to find out a bit about you, what makes you tick, um, why you're here, why you're doing what you're doing, sure. etc. So, could we start right at the beginning, when you were born and where you were born? September the 16th, so I've had my birthday recently. Right, well, uh, many happy returns. <laughs> thank I think. you very much. Uh, 1957, right. which means I'm 61. And you're a Libra. Uh, 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 I'm a Virgo. You're a Virgo, okay, because yeah. I'm just into Libra, so. Right, right. Not soon. Yeah, go on. Uh, born in a hospital in Watford, which no longer exists. We lived in Radlett. Yes, no, uh, well, we lived in Watford. Yeah. Bushy, we lived. Oh, right, yeah. okay. And fascinatingly, our oldest son is now thinking of moving to Bushy, so. Okay. Um, so, uh, my dad. Um, was a meteorologist and he then subsequently moved to the uh, new meteorological office, uh, government meteorological office, which was part of the Ministry of Defence in those days uh, and it was established in uh, Bracknell in Berkshire uh, so at the age of two and a half uh, the family uh, moved to Guildford right. in Surrey um, and Dad commuted to Bracknell, and so I, w I was at school in Guildford until the age of 14, uh, and then Dad had been very keen to set up a research unit um, separate from the meteorological office, and he talked to various universities, and 
but the one that really embraced the idea and got the funding together uh, was UEA. Yeah. So in 1970, uh, he established the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. Yeah. I remember helping him move into his first office as a 14-year-old. Yes. Um, we moved up a year later because my uh, middle sister, I had two older sisters, my middle sister was finishing off at her sixth form, so we family had to stay down there whilst she finished her, at school. In Guildford. In yeah. Guildford, and then we all moved up. Uh, lived in South Norfolk in a village called Ketteringham, near the Lotus headquarters. Okay. Um, was that significant, being near Lotus? Not no. particularly. Okay. No, no I, we didn't have one. All right. Uh, and I went to uh, Wyndham College. Right. So from the age of 14 through to uh, finishing my A-levels, I was at Wyndham College. Yeah. I have a lovely image of your father with a satchel or something, going around counting meteorites, there's one, and picking them up and put them, putting them in his satchel to take back. What does a meteorologist do? Well, he, uh, he was quite eccentric, but he didn't do that. <laughs> uh, um, he uh, studies uh, the climate. Uh, I mean, he became a, a research climatologist. I mean, that, that was his interest, looking, studying... Uh, climate over the long term and he he was one of the first uh, climatologists globally to identify that there were massive great cycles of climate so you have ice ages and then warmer periods and then back to ice ages again over a very long period of time um, and so at various times in my uh, childhood we were our holidays would tend to coincide quite often with research he was doing or whatever and I remember being uh, having a photograph taken of me I think only for the sake of perspective right. uh, on a hillside near Tewkesbury because this was the site of a medieval vineyard which showed a warmer period uh, in this country uh, that was the sort of thing that happened in our family uh, he, we, we went on holiday to the Faroe Islands, uh, where he was interested in some climate issue. So, um, so that was very much part of li life as, as we grew up. Um, but um, I think when my mum and dad first met uh, in Scotland, and my mother uh, was told that he was a meteorologist, she thought that that meant that he studied the stars. Right. And... and um, and so she mugged up on the stars before their first date uh, and was rather uh, confused to discover what he really did. He must have been impressed, I think. <laughs> she realised he studied falling stars. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you presumably have no memory of Watford particularly, but you do have a memory of Guildford? Yeah, no, no memory of Watford whatsoever. Uh, That's probably wise. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't talk about uh, Watford very much, but I'm sure. Fans here. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, I'm sure Watford has great merits. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, I, <laughs> but I just have no memory. I was two and a half uh, after all. Uh, but yeah, I do have uh, real memories of Guildford and, um, and school, primary school and secondary school there. Uh, I failed the 11 plus, um, uh, and all went, the best people do, I think. Uh, and I went to um, what had newly been established as a comprehensive school in Guildford, but it was sort of 
not really the real thing because there was still a grammar school. So the, the top, uh, the children who passed 11 plus on the whole went to the grammar school. Some chose to go to the comprehensive, uh, but, I, but it was streamed and I went into what was in effect a sort of grammar stream. Um, and when we moved to Norfolk, I was able to get into Wyndham College, which was still then a grammar school. Right. Um, so, so that that sort of is an interesting point because many people uh, make the argument that we should kind of go back to grammar schools. Um, I don't think, from, from my personal experience, it makes sense to make a judgment on someone at the age of eleven. Because, you know, ultimately I was judged a failure. Right. Uh, if we'd lived on the other side of town, I'd have gone to a, an old-fashioned secondary modern school. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect my chances would have been very limited. Uh, and interestingly, we had four days away last week uh, with some friends. Uh, and two others had also failed their 11 pluses, both of whom have gone on to be enormously successful. Uh, despite that um, setback, as it were. So I, uh, that, that's something that I feel quite strongly about. Uh, I was fortunate because I went to a very good uh, new comprehensive uh, and then subsequently got into a very good school in Norfolk when we moved up here. So a few days away last week with some friends. Was that at the conference or you... Um, no, you I escaped as soon as the conference was over. <laughs> and uh, we actually flew to Toulouse and we had... Four days in the most glorious countryside, uh, total silence and peace uh, in Wonderful. beautiful weather like here, but about 15 degrees warmer. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Did you have particular strong memories of school um, in terms of maybe people who influenced you, people who inspired you at that stage in uh, whatever way? Well, I, um, I have memories of Wyndham College, good and bad. Because uh, that is a boarding school as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's the largest state boarding school in the country, but I was a day pupil there. Right. Um, quite a tortuous journey involving a bike ride of two miles and then getting on a bus, and it all took quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but actually, uh, the, the teacher I remember most was my art teacher, and I did art A-level, um, and was very tempted to go down that route. Right. Um, and was persuaded to go to university instead. Uh, but I was—I loved art, and I spent probably far too much time in the art block. Uh, they were all Nissen huts in those days. It was yes. quite a strange experience. Well, art was always put out on the fringes, out near the, the yeah. near the gate or the back fence or the yeah. bike shed. Yeah, uh, interesting. But I used to turn pots. I did. I did pottery okay. as part of my art A level, and I loved okay. it. Interesting. Last week we we were in Whitby and there was an exhibition up there of um, Emily Banker's daughter, who was a very good artist yeah. um, and was very tempted to go to art college and things. There were some beautiful mm. pictures of workers and uh, women working in factories and things, but she was drawn towards going down the mm. the, the um, political route with her mother. I'll take it up again when I finish this job. <laughs> excellent, excellent. It's never too late or never too soon, you know. So, yeah. Um, but you didn't go down the art route. And perhaps you just say, did, are you an only child? Did you have No, I had two older sisters, um, Catherine and Kirsten. Okay. My, my oldest sister, Catherine, sadly took her own life two and a half years ago after the death of our mother, who some of you uh, know knew uh, very well. 
and I think the loss of our mother uh, hit very hard and mm -hmm. she had a period of quite deep uh, clinical depression, uh, made several attempts tragically um, and eventually after a period of being in hospital uh, and then a period of what we felt was quite good recovery, yes. um, she um, then suddenly out of the blue took her own life. Uh, my other yeah. sister, Kirsten, um, who was up staying with us with her husband a couple of weeks ago, um, lives in uh, Hertfordshire again, um, in Hartenden. Yes. Um, and you know, generally, we've been a close family, um, and we maintain um, close contact with uh, Catherine's two children, two adult children, and their children, and so forth. And um, and and that's quite important to us. Right. Were you spoiled being the younger brother? Were, did so. they sort of mother you? And uh, no, I think it was, uh, it was a mixture. I, I I'm sure at times I was spoiled. I don't particularly remember that. That might be just my prejudice. <laughs> um, I uh, I think to a degree, um, possibly shaped by what happened at the eleven plus. But I don't think I think my parents probably thought that I was, um, that my two sisters were the achievers, um, uh, much more so than me. And my mother was desperately trying to find some sort of career for me. Okay. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do at school. And she came up with town and country planning as the way forward uh, for me. Well, that's an obvious um, choice, isn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I also remember going off, um, I think, during sixth form to some assessment in London with my mother uh, at the early days of sort of, um, I mean I'm sure it wasn't computerised in those days but it was some sort of uh, way in which they could uh, predict what was the best match for you and uh, it came up that I, uh, one option was a vicar Right. Well, it's close to politics, isn't it? There are some similarities. Yeah, but I didn't go down that route. Yeah, yeah. Your mum didn't work, I'm presuming, from what you're saying, or she? She was a nurse in her early years and trained in Scotland and then in London, and but then committed as was. Uh, normal, I guess, in her generation, committed her uh, life to bringing three children up. Yeah. <coughs> and additionally, really importantly, doing a, a massive amount of charity work, um, both when we lived in Guildford and then in uh, when we first lived, moved to Norfolk. In South Norfolk, she was a very uh, ardent uh, and enthusiastic member of the WI. Uh, and then moved to Holton was the member of the WI here, one of the WIs. I don't know whether any of you were member there. Member of the right. she moved, when it closed, she moved to the afternoon. Right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the reminder. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but also lots of charity uh, work as well. That's what motivated her. And uh, she, was a, uh, she was an immensely impressive woman, in my view. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we owe her an enormous amount, both, both parents, but it was a traditional upbringing with a dad working very long hours, very, very committed to his work, uh, working at weekends late at night, um, 
there are some similarities. Um, but, but also a very devoted father. And, and um, you know, I think we were very fortunate in uh, our upbringing. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that's not recognised the, I mean, it is on occasion, the importance of, of women who stay at home housewives, but also that contribution to the voluntary sector, which goes on now with people who were able to take an earlier retirement, giving to the community in, in ways that um, you know, are unpaid and, and really service an awful lot of activities and organisations. I think it's well, very important. Well, I'm acutely aware through the job I do uh, of the number of people who contribute massively to their communities in very quiet ways, mm. unsung heroes doing amazing things um, and committing enormous amounts of time and energy to things that they care all about. Yes. And mum was one of them. Right, right. Mm. Did your father have aspirations for you at all then? You said your mum worked very hard to decide what you should go on to do. Yeah, uh, I think I, that's what mums did in a way. I remember my mum being the same. We worried that you'd end up doing nothing very much. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, I don't think Dad... I mean, uh, the, you know, um, he... Um, it was, my, it was my, my mother, our mother, who uh, devoted the most amount of time and attention to thinking about what on earth I should do. Um, and she sort of, uh, uh, I, I suspect at times, despaired of me. Um, Dad, um, to his credit, he wasn't trying to direct me in a particular direction like some parents do. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember him being particularly uh, driven to uh, sort of assist me in finding the right route. But they gave me so many opportunities, so I'm not in any way complaining. At that early stage, moving from not well Watford, which you don't remember, but Guildford, which is a large city outside London, and then coming to rural Norfolk, although I think you moved to Norwich first. Well, to south Norfolk, yeah. to Ketteringham, yeah. What, do you remember that having any particular impact? Were you aware of stark differences? or? Well, uh, positives and negatives. Uh, the negative was that uh, at the age of 14, moving to a new school can be quite difficult. Yeah. And I remember on my very first day, uh, I was asked by the class teacher, so what's your name? And I said, Norman Lamb. And they said, and where are you from? Guildford in Surrey. And all of this class of uh, Norfolk students at the age of 14, and they can be quite brutal at that age, all decided that I was this posh boy from okay. the south of England. Yes. And it was then, oh, it's Norman Lamb from Guildford in Surrey. And, <laughs> I, I, and that was how I was defined uh, to start with. And I, so I, I really hated it to start with and felt quite sort of isolated um, and on my very first day at Wyndham College uh, someone uh, in an older year um, managed to burn down the pavilion uh, through I suspect smoking behind it um, and so the whole school was the next day into the sports hall with this inquiry starting and I sort of wondered what earth I'd come into. Uh, it's not something you really associate with Wyndham College, okay. a place of learning. You know, but, uh, so it was, that was all a bit difficult. But my passion uh, is football. And I'd, before we moved up here, I uh, had identified that Norwich City were going for promotion to the old First Division, as it then was. 
and uh, and uh, just before we moved up here, they got promotion to the first division. So here I was as a 14-year-old boy going along to watch Norwich playing Manchester United and Arsenal. And I just absolutely loved this. And I've been a passionate, devoted fan of Norwich City ever since. Yeah. And with all of the awful ups and downs that that involves. <laughs> um. Sorry. And I loved living in the countryside also. I mean, we, we lived in the most beautiful place um, in Ketteringham, uh, close to Ketteringham Hall, which was the, as I say, the owned by uh, Colin Chapman, the owner of Lotus. Uh, and it was where all of the Formula One uh, work was done in the outbuildings at Ketteringham Hall. Mm. But it was just a very beautiful place, yeah. very quiet and silent, and, and yet... 15 minutes into the centre of Norwich, so it was it was wonderful. I loved living in the countryside, using public transport and being your own boss to yeah. some degree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and biking and yeah, yeah. Had you come on holiday uh, to Norfolk before? Had you well, had the family the, any knowledge? Our connection to Norfolk uh, and what I think had led Dad to contact UEA was that my eldest sister Catherine had gone to UEA okay. to do modern languages, and we'd come up. Uh, on three or four occasions to see her perform in the UEA choir um, in concerts in Wyndham Abbey and various other places. And, uh, and so we'd come to Norfolk as a family and had loved it. Uh, so we'd already sort of got an attachment to Norfolk hmm. before moving here. Right. Um, and uh, uh, I think sometimes people who move to an area... Um, uh, have a particularly close affection for it, actually, uh, uh, and that's how I feel about Norfolk. Yes, no, I think that's right, and I'm always surprised that the number of people who come to the events like this and involved in the library, other events, are often people who are incomers, not the people who, who were born here. Um, so we get to the end of schooling, and you've enjoyed art, and your mum's suggesting that you might become a planner, a town planner, that's a good direction for you. Probably because it involves a bit of drawing, she thinks, or something like that. Um, <laughs> Who does? <laughs> um, what, what to you, you're standing there on the threshold, last day of school, as it were, or off into the summer holiday and, and, and what's happening next. What, what have you decided to do, or what are you beginning to think you want to do? Well, so I went to university. Know, I, I didn't do particularly well in my A-levels, uh, and so I had to go through the clearing system. Yeah. So I ended up at Leicester University, unexpectedly, um, and, uh, and then and did social sciences right. in my first year. But I had already started to think that I was... Uh, interested in becoming a solicitor. I'd done some work experience with a friend who was a partner of a law firm in Norwich who I'd met through the fact that I had already gained an interest in politics. So from the age of... I knocked on doors in a general election at the age of about 15 or 16. Okay. Uh, and... Who was that for? For the Liberals in okay. South Norfolk. Right. Um, my parents were Liberals. Right. Um, so I guess that was the atmosphere in our household. Uh, they weren't involved. They weren't um, dogmatic. <coughs> but um, I got involved. I found it all very interesting. Um, and I used to come back from knocking on doors 
telling the organisers that they were all going to vote Liberal. And, uh, and I think someone said to me, they're just trying to get rid of you. Uh, <laughs> and I've, I've remembered that ever since. Um, uh, but they could have been charmed that you were there as a 14-year-old boy and wanted possibly, to encourage you, possibly. so there is another side. Or a sympathy vote, I yes. don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I set up a young Liberal group at school in, in the sixth form at Wyndham College. Um, then went off to university at Leicester. I wasn't interested in student politics, it felt like a bit false and not the real thing. Um, so, I, But I managed to, in my first year, to I went to see the law department and I persuaded them that they should give me a place. Uh, and I had to get a 2-1 in my first year and if I got that I could transfer. But I'd have to start uh, over again, so to do a fourth year as it were. Uh, but I got to a 2-1 and got into law, ended up with a law degree. Uh, and in the final year of doing a law degree, I became president of the University Law Society and received an, um, a letter from the local member of parliament uh, who went by the name of Greville Janner. Now, some of you may have heard that name because he got uh, caught up in allegations of child abuse. Um, and you may remember that the uh, it all got extremely messy because he faced several allegations uh, and but ended up with dementia mm. and because he didn't uh, have capacity um, it was ruled by the Crown Prosecution Service that he wasn't fit to stand trial so there's this awful sense that justice couldn't be done because uh, the individual wasn't able to face the trial so, and then he died and who knows what the truth is um, uh, there was nothing that happened in my time with him that would indicate uh, guilt um, uh, I was approached by the police when they were investigating it um, but he had written to the president of the University Law Society to say I'm looking to recruit a, uh, a parliamentary assistant um, uh, could you advertise it in the law department? Uh, and I did, I put it up on the notice board, but I applied myself and got the job. Um, so I, on leaving university uh, uh, with a law degree, I, I got a job working for a member of parliament at Westminster on a very low wage. Um, and it was the most fascinating year uh, because he got this enormous insight into how Parliament worked or didn't, as the case may be. Yeah. It was the year when the SDP MPs were leaving the Labour Party and it was all happening in the offices around me. So I was witnessing Shirley Williams and uh, Roy Jenkins and all the others meeting together. Uh, I, I and Because Greville Janner was a Labour MP and a group of about, th I think, three of us wrote to Shirley Williams and said, could we meet with you? and she agreed to meet with us um, and she was an immensely impressive person um, totally chaotic and uh, forgetful as I discovered on a later visit to India with her where she lost her passport and all sorts <laughs> of disasters uh, but a lovely person and, um, and so that was quite influential in, uh, uh, in what I ended up doing I think but uh, um, uh, after finishing working for Greville Janner for a year. And I, didn't, I ended the year not through the reasons that led to the notoriety later on, but I just didn't end the year with a great deal of respect for him as a right. person. Um, 
but I thought to myself I would love to uh, come back here on the basis of what I believe in, um, which was easier said than done. When you say come back here, you mean back to Norfolk? No, back to to get elected to Parliament. Okay, yeah, okay. all right, so see what you mean, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you obviously came back to Norfolk at that, that yeah. time, you were based in Norwich, yeah. um, because you were here, you'd been here before and it seemed natural to come home, or did you feel you had a particular affinity yeah, with coming? I was applying for various jobs, trainee jobs in law firms in London, uh, and but I had a girlfriend. Uh, so often the way, isn't it? <laughs> uh, in, Nor in Norwich, who, who has been my wife for 34 years. Okay, so um, it was quite serious. Yeah. Uh, and she was in Norwich, so I, I applied for and got a job at uh, Norwich City Council as a trainee solicitor, so I went there and then in good local government terms, went straight from being a trainee to senior assistant solicitor okay. uh, in one fell swoop uh, and stayed about 18 months and then left and joined a law firm, primarily because I wanted to get elected to Norwich City Council and I couldn't do that when I worked there. Right, right. Good, good. Now, the Liberals weren't particularly strong in, in Norfolk at that time, were they? No. Um, I mean, there was Clement Freud was, was MP at Ely, was he at that? Yeah. So that, that was probably the nearest the Liberals got to here? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it was barren territory. There hadn't been a Liberal MP in Norfolk since, I think, someone might know here, but the 20s, I think. Um, it was a long time. So, uh, but, you know, if you're in one of the big parties, they have lots of safe seats around the country and a lot of people... Um, move across the country to get a safe seat and get themselves elected in that way. That's not an option with the Lib Dems because there aren't any safe seats. Uh, the only option, if you if you want to uh, fulfil your ambition of getting elected to Parliament, is to, in a sense, create your own opportunity and and uh, and and build your own. Um, Roots, uh, roots, yeah. and and so that's what I set about doing. But it was, it was a bit of an accident in a way that I ended up in North Norfolk. I'd been thinking of standing in Norwich, um, but uh, in the aftermath of the alliance, if you remember, the Social Democrats and the Liberals, and it all went horribly wrong. And in the late 80s, in about 80, in 80, 1987, I got elected to Norwich City Council. And the plan was to stand in Norwich. And uh, after the collapse of the alliance, and um, we were an asterisk in the opinion polls. We didn't even rate as 1%. Uh, and I remember Paddy Ashdown as the leader of the new party visiting UEA. And he was in a pretty low mood. Um, and uh, and it was a, a dismal time, and I, I actually withdrew my application for Norwich because I just thought uh, I want to do this properly. But if I, in the current climate, if I can slog my guts out and get achieve absolutely nothing, uh, we were wanting to start a family, and I just thought it it didn't make sense. So I withdrew and decided I wasn't going to stand at the next election. And then my parents, of course, by that stage, were living in Holt, 
they'd retired to Holt, right. and Mum, I think, said to me um, that someone else involved, who happened to be the, called uh, Paul, well, Paul and Pam Corney, who lived over in Bacton, uh, had said, could you ask Norman whether he'd be willing to stand as a candidate, because we've got no one. Uh, and it, it was that desperate. <laughs> uh, so I said... I hope I, you took that the right way. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, they were desperate, you know. So I said, um, I'll stand, but on the basis that I fly the flag, so mm. that people can vote Liberal if they want to, but um, without any intention of putting in a massive effort. Uh, and then just before the deadline, two other people applied. And so I had to make a decision. I can't put myself forward on the basis that I will do nothing. So I either had to withdraw or say that I was going to do it seriously. So I thought, I've got to do this seriously. So uh, that's what I decided to do. I got selected as the candidate, and then I set about it. And so it was a bit of an accident. Uh, sorry for those of you who are unhappy having me as your MP, but that, that was the accident that happened that led to me standing here. It wasn't a carefully thought-out, cunning plan that this was the place to do it. Uh, it, was, it fitted really nicely because my parents were here. I had this affinity with Holt. Um, I loved the place, uh, and so it just ended up being perfect, but it was an accident. Okay. Would you like to just say a little about what you love about the place, Holt, and, and perhaps the wider area of Norfolk? Yes, yeah, so my mum and dad moved here, I think, in the early 80s. Someone, somebody here might know better than me the date. I was trying to remember it this morning. Um, and so, of course, we were constant visitors. Uh, Sunday lunches in uh, the lovely house on Grove Lane. Uh, lovely neighbours, uh, and in the latter days, after my dad died in 97, uh, and mum lived on her own from 97 all the way through to 2013, um, and into to 95, but in her latter years became uh, obviously quite frail, uh, and the most amazing people um, around her looking after her and caring for her, because I, you know, she had a daughter in Harpenden, and a daughter in Newcastle and a son who was spending the week in London. Yeah. Uh, so fantastic people, um, a lovely place um, and just very happy memories and, and, and then bringing our family up there and playing football in the garden with Archie and Ned. Um, so very happy memories of, of Grove Lane in Hulls. Right, right. Is there anything, uh, you know, you'd moved on from um, being a solicitor, then a councillor, and into um, mainstream politics MP. Is there anything that you missed, that you left behind from being a solicitor to becoming a councillor to then moving on? Or I was a councillor whilst I was an MP. I yeah. didn't do it as a full-time... Sorry, I was a councillor whilst I was a solicitor. Yes. So... Uh, Did you have good memories of that well, I, stage? Uh, yeah. Uh, and the, the job I did as a partner of a law firm, I ended up specialising in employment law. Uh, it was a very interesting and uh, worthwhile job, I felt. Um, uh, but I always wanted to do something else. Um, and I, I, never, I've, I haven't for one minute regretted doing what I've done. Um, 
the downside is that it, there is a sacrifice to be paid, and, yes. uh, and doing it the job in the way I've chosen to do it, which is you know putting body and soul into it. Um, uh, you, you, you have to have a very patient spouse. Very many marriages in Westminster break up. That's the horrible truth of it. Yes. Um, I, I've had the most amazing uh, spouse, Mary, uh, who has been, you know, who's, who's backed me all the way. Uh, never been a problem that some of colleagues have had. Yes. Uh, uh, but also, of course, um, family and, and for the teenage years, because I was elected when they were about 10 and 12, for the teenage years, Mary, from Monday to Thursday, was like a single parent. Right. Uh, and, of course, then our oldest one, Archie, went through quite difficult times uh, with uh, mental health problems, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And she was having to cope with this uh, on her own. Uh, which is not easy, no. uh, and you know we've we've gone through years of emotional turmoil uh, with that. Yes. Um, but for Mary, she was dealing with it on her own, and you know the sort of outbreaks of rage because of the what he was trying to cope with, um, and you can't deal with anything down a phone as a parent. You've got to be there. Yeah. So you know that that was really difficult, particularly when I became minister, because <coughs> you know. Uh, you're working ludicrous hours. Yes, yes, yes. <coughs> and you feel a responsibility in all directions, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. But we have, we have remained a very close family throughout. Mm. And one of the benefits of social media, you know, we're on a little WhatsApp group and <coughs> we're in touch every single day, mm. uh, all four of us, mm. which is yes. great. Yes. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about a day in the life of Norman Lamb. I mean, is there an average day in the life? Is there, is there a typical day? When does it start? When does it finish? Uh, so there isn't a typical day, and that's the beauty of this job. It's constantly fascinating, uh, constantly changing. The nature of it has changed quite considerably since I started. Um, you know, everybody now emails me, or most, most people do. We, we still get a small number of letters, but... The vast bulk is email, but you're being approached by Twitter, by Facebook, by email, by phone. So it's coming at you from every direction. Um, while I'm in Norfolk, uh, I will spend a lot of time visiting uh, places, yeah. doing things like this, yeah. visiting schools. I was in a, a Tunstead Primary School uh, day before yesterday, talking in the assembly. Uh, yesterday I visited a group of volunteers doing uh, uh, nature conservation work in the wood on the edge of North Walsham, then visited a riding stable who've had difficulties, it was a casework issue that I'd taken up for them, um, uh, and then back to uh, have a meal with someone in Norwich who's a, a, a significant person in the social enterprise movement and and sort of more for a policy discussion uh, in the evening, getting back home at about 10 o'clock. Um, uh, while I'm in London, um, I'm now chair of the Science and Technology Select Committee. So this is a cross-party group of MPs, five Conservatives, four Labour, one SNP and me. Um, and you have to work on a consensual basis. Uh, you have to try and bring everybody together. 
we do a whole range of very fascinating inquiries, so that now takes up a lot of my time. It, all, it often involves me having to speak at conferences. Yeah. Um, we have every week we have an evidence session where experts come in on a, a particular inquiry that we're undertaking to give evidence to us. But there's a lot of background work beyond the hearings. Yes. Uh, I have to chair the hearings, of course. Um, but then you're trying to juggle that with uh, sometimes speaking in Parliament. Um, uh, I think sometimes people get a slightly false impression. They see images of the chamber on television, and it, you know, quite often it looks empty. And people automatically and understandably conclude... What a lazy load of so-and-sos. Um, some are lazy. You know, we, I think politicians reflect society probably. Sure. Some are lazy. Yeah. Uh, some work extraordinarily hard. But when you're not in the chamber, and I'm not in the chamber most of the time, I'm in wall-to-wall meetings yes. uh, or reading, uh, preparing for a speech uh, or tabling parliamentary questions or... Uh, 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 speaking in a conference somewhere so th there's a vast array of different things that hit you in October I'm travelling to uh, Canada to speak in a mental health conference in Montreal um, I was in uh, Rotterdam a fortnight ago speaking in a suicide prevention conference, obviously something that I care a lot about um, so it's just this great variety um, and, and then within Norfolk, there's the advice surgeries. I do them every week, including in Holt. It's yes. a rotation. Philip is often there uh, yes. supporting me. Um, but um, the, so you're dealing with individual constituents who come to see you with a whole array of problems, sometimes to raise ideas about uh, national policy issues or international issues, uh, but more often than not, coming because they're trying to deal with an acute personal issue, some of which are tragic uh, and require a lot of empathy, a lot of support, um, but helping people through those personal crises is part of the job and a part of the job that I care a lot about. Yes, yeah. What do you do for downtime? Do you have any downtime? Um, um, I mean, well, not least because you've had some health issues yeah. you, recently, and yeah. you ought to be taking it a little bit more quietly. Yeah, but, uh, and that's work in progress. Okay. <laughs> so what do you do to relax, and do you have slack time that you... Well, I go to see Norwich City to relax, but I rarely relax. <laughs> <laughs> I come out more stressed than I um, so, But, you know, take last week. Um, in this glorious part of uh, southwest France, we kayaked two days out of four, right. about seven or eight kilometres down the river. Okay. Uh, I was behind Mary; she constantly splashed me with in the face with a water <laughs> the river. Uh, I did a fantastic walk with one of the others in the group of about seven miles um, in glorious scenery. I love walking. I, we have not nearly enough time to do it, but um, uh, yeah, uh, walking, travelling, um, uh, music, I love music, I, I love art actually, I still love art, um, so those are the things that um, uh, float my boat. Okay.
Yeah, well, could you push for a major art gallery up here, do you think? That would be... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have any particular uh, things that you're proud of over the recent past or the longer past, or anything you particularly regret that you haven't been able to achieve or do? So, um, of course, the period in coalition was the sort of great controversial period mm -hmm. in, in my time in, in Parliament. I've been there for 17 years now. Of course, we went almost immediately after getting elected. We had 9-11 yeah. uh, within three months, two months of getting elected. So immediately plunged into a crisis. Um, and so we, and then the Iraq war and, uh, and uh, all of the aftermath, then the financial crash. So it, it has been an extraordinary period, actually. Um, then suddenly in 2010, we find ourselves in government. Uh, and... As a Lib Dem, I'd never dreamt that I would be uh, in government. It's quite interesting, David Pryor, who, the, the MP that I beat, mm -hmm. who I've ended up have, getting on very well with, and, uh, um, and actually when I was Minister, nominated him to become Chair of the Care Quality Commission, mm -hmm. um, <coughs> which I think is quite a good thing, that two politicians from different parties can end up uh, getting on very well, despite being head-to-head -head for six years. We, yes. I think had a degree of mutual respect uh, for each other, um, but uh, David Pryor would, I think, got elected absolutely assuming that he would be in the cabinet within a few years. I never dreamt that that would be the case, and so suddenly to find yourself in that position was extraordinary. For the first two and a half years, I uh, was advisor to Nick Clegg. Uh, of course, much maligned and criticised, uh, sometimes rightly so, but I think um, overall he made a massive contribution to this country recovering from a financial crisis. Because, mm -hmm. like it or not, it was five years of stable government. Yes. Uh, and I think, and it may be a view not shared by a single person in the room, but I think that was quite a good period of government, actually, in many ways. Um, there was a combination of financial uh, discipline, but with some enlightened uh, things happening as well. We made some big mistakes. Uh, I think the bedroom tax was a big mistake uh, because it meant that people on low incomes were sometimes forced into uh, moving from their home. Uh, I, th I, I had concerns about it at the time. I've, I don't think I spoke up enough about it. I questioned it. Um, so I think that was a mistake. Um, but uh, I'm very proud of the work I did on mental health mm. in, in the Department of Health. I'm proud of the work I did as Employment Minister. I'd had eight months as Employment Minister in the Business Department. Uh, obviously, in, because I was an employment lawyer, it was an area that I yeah. knew something about. Uh, I took a bill through Parliament. Uh, but then as health minister, I contributing to opening up a debate about mental health and getting it into the open and combating the stigma. And, um, and there are lots of things that we did that I think have made a difference for people. We ma managed to reduce the number of people who end up in a police cell at a moment of mental health crisis by 50%. 
uh, it's now down to you know a very low figure. Um, I set up a an organisation to train people to become mental health social workers. It's thriving now. It, I'm I'm on the board, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a whole new cohort of brilliant graduates are going into mental health social work. Yeah. Um, that happened because I did it. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, we got extra money for children's mental health. Not all of it, I'm afraid, has come through as it should have done. Uh, there's a whole host of different things that I'm very proud of, um, but also lots of total frustrations as well. Yeah. A major regret in your time till now? Well, uh, the regret was some of the policy decisions that were taken during the coalition. You have to remember, uh, I mean, some people think that, you know, why on earth did you vote for this? Um, if you're in the government, you've got a big decision to make. If, I've, if I'm not prepared to vote for this, you have to leave the government. You can't opt out. Hmm. It's collective responsibility. Hmm. And, and, and so this creates enormous ethical dilemmas for politicians because you have to ask yourself the question, if I leave the government on this basis, I stop doing the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Now, if you're, if you're doing work that you feel is worthwhile work, do you abandon all of that? Um, so, now these are moral, ethical dilemmas. Actually, most people face them in their careers at one stage or another, in their own working uh, uh, area. Uh, it's much more in the public eye as a politician. But I think sometimes it's easy to condemn a politician for a decision that they've taken. And some people do lose sight of the ethical dimension yes. and become driven by the sort of polit political game, the, the, the tribal battle. Um, I've never been particularly interested in the tribal battle, and I spend a lot of time trying to bring people together on like the future of the NHS, I think parties should be working together, trying to find common ground. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much more attractive approach, which I suspect a lot of the public um, would prefer than the endless, yeah. you know, Yahoo, Yahoo type of politics. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that would make you, um, other than health perhaps, make you want to give up, think it's not worth it anymore? Uh, I think we're in a very depressing time in politics at the moment, uh, perhaps stating the obvious. Um, I, I mean, I'd be interested in the views of people in the room. I don't think there's much out there to inspire people at the moment. Um, the, this particular government, you know, I, I, there are lots of Conservative MPs who I get on very well with, and uh, you hear them say they do nothing, there's nothing happening and they get totally frustrated by the sort of inertia uh, when there are such big challenges we face and just sort of a sense that we're doing nothing. Mm. We're spending £2 billion on extra civil servants to deal with the Brexit process. Um, uh, but I, what I... And on the left, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of Labour MPs who I get on very well with are in despair about where their party's gone. Um, and I just feel that uh, politics and politicians are falling short of what's needed. Uh, people need inspiration, they need ideas, and they need actually sometimes people to be brave in mm. confronting big challenges. Yeah. Sometimes, as I've said, you need to work together to confront big challenges, and I think there's a failure to do that very often. But above all, I think the political discourse is 
uh, aggressive and abusive. Uh, the pop, you know, when populists take over and peddle easy solutions to complex problems, um, I think it's more difficult now to have rational discussion and to reach conclusions based on evidence uh, than it used to be. Right. Um, and I think that's depressing. So yeah. I think we're going through a very difficult period. My desperate hope is that it's a phase and that we will come out the other end of it and return to a more rational, uh, evidence-based approach. Okay. Now, I'm aware we're about 12 o'clock. We did start slightly late and then whatever. So I'd like to give people just a moment to ask some questions. Sure. I've still got lots of questions I could ask myself. But Can I, um, can I start with one? Uh, Norman mentioned about politicians working together. Although I now live in Norfolk, I, we came up from London a year and a half ago, and I still control a crime awareness group for West London with 11,000 members. Blimey. And our politician for our area was Boris. Right, OK. <laughs> now, <coughs> we, the people in that area desperately want politicians to work together to overturn the cutbacks yeah. with regards yeah. to the police force. Yeah. But there's no evidence of it. Yeah. That's just a classic example well, where they could be working together, but they're not. Well, I agree, and I often think that, you know, uh, it, it's going to be more and more difficult to fund our public services, um, wherever you are on the political spectrum, if we're honest about this. And the reason is that, uh, traditionally, uh, we've had about four people of working age working and paying taxes for every one person in retirement. But we're all living much longer. Uh, we're having far more years in retirement, which is a great triumph in many ways, but it means that the ratio by 2050 will be closer to 2 to 1 than 4 to 1. So it's just harder to raise them taxes in order to pay for the range of services that uh, we need. And so we need to be prepared to be innovative and think differently. So, for example, in Norfolk, um, I think it's ridiculous having eight councils in one county, all providing uh, public services, all with their own hierarchies, their very well-paid chief executives and finance officers and so forth. There needs to be a rationalisation of that. We need, to, we need to protect those frontline services, the police, for example, and reduce the amount of money we're spending on unnecessary bureaucracy. But the appetite to do it uh, is lacking, in my view. And... And so often, sort of petty politics gets in the way of a rational uh, review of how best to use scarce public resources. Mm. And it's deeply frustrating. Mm. Given what you have just said, is it wise that the government then spends so much money on things like Trident, on Crossrail mm. and other things, where, uh, where NHS2 and things like that? that don't seem to, A, give any benefit to the country, we're hardly likely to go to nuclear war. Um, leaders within those industries, and I'm thinking of Lord Dallant, says we've all got the wrong type of ships anyway. So, so why does the government do that sort of mm. thing? So, well, the first thing I would uh, immediately say is I'm not an expert on defence, and uh, I position myself as a multilateralist. I think that we should be trying to collectively reduce the stock of nuclear weapons globally. Um, so I haven't favoured unilateral withdrawal, 
but I see the arguments for it, I, I, which is essentially what you're saying. Uh, you know, it does, does, does the Trident system meet the needs of today? And I think there's a big question mark as to whether it does. Um, we're facing a wholly different type of threat than what we did in, during the Cold War. Uh, the threats, you know, they talk about asymmetric uh, warfare, you know, you can bring down a country uh, through terrorist cells um, or through, you know, poisoning the water system or bringing down the uh, internet uh, yeah. in a country or, you know, the, uh, and, and so all sorts of different uh, threats now uh, exist which didn't exist 30 years ago. Cyber warfare is a constant threat now. Um, and so does it make sense to be spending that amount of money on Trident? And I th that, that there's a debate that should be had there. I don't have a final answer to that question, but I think we should have that uh, uh, discussion uh, and a more thorough review than we've had to date. Uh, on HS2 Crossrail, I think from what I understand on Crossrail, there does appear to be quite a lot of evidence that um, uh, in terms of the flows of people around London uh, and the extent to which the existing transport infrastructure in London is up to capacity completely, and I can vouch for that, trying to get anywhere, particularly in Russia, uh, I think there may well be a case for that. Uh, you hear very powerful arguments on both sides of the HS2 debate. I supported it in government, but there's definitely a need for more capacity north to south. Um, whether the technology will be out of date by the time we actually get it, I think there's a big concern that that might well be the case. But I do, th your overall point is there's a need for a sort of base budget review, you know, to think afresh what should government be spending money on given that we're losing things of enormous value and importance uh, and spending an awful lot of money on systems that in the past might have been justified but not necessarily so today. And I do think we need to be prepared to uh, have a more fundamental review of the purpose of government and, and how money is raised as well. I'd like to add a question on to the end of that, which is, um, how do you think you manage to persuade people, I was going to say particularly younger people, but I don't think it's true, I don't think there's a definite demographic, but that, that politics is still relevant, i.e. That, that Westminster is still relevant, that that's the way to do things through a democracy, voting people through, the whole question yes. about manifestos that people have and they say Bless they, you. Yes. that they've um, you know that they've been given well, a, I think a it's mandate a, and yeah I think it's a massive challenge actually. I mean first of all when you knock on a door and a young person answers, too often the answer is I'm not interested. And that's a real worry. Uh, because I mean if they're not voting their voice isn't heard and uh, political parties won't focus on the needs of young people for a start. Um, uh, there was a survey done in, which I read about last week in America, which showed that some horribly large percentage, um, I think in the 20s uh, of percent in America, now question the value of democracy. And of course, in my view, Trump is undermining the rule of law, um, which is vital for, the, it's the foundation stone of a of a liberal democracy in the broadest sense. 
Uh, and so I think we face enormous threats, and um, we, ha we have to do far better at articulating the importance of democracy and the fact that, bluntly, any other system is worse. <laughs> you know, it, this has lots of imperfections, uh, but uh, enabling people to have their say is vital, I think, and, and an open system of government so there is transparency about what goes on and how money is spent. I do think we need to devolve power much more. I think we're far too centralised. Does Whitehall really know what Norfolk needs? Um, too often it's a case of us pleading with Whitehall to give us the money to do something. Um, I was at the research park earlier this week, I had to give a talk uh, on my work on the Science and Technology Select Committee, and they were talking about the rail link to Cambridge. Now, for the, re the development of, re of research in Norfolk and Norwich in particular, and these are skilled jobs in our own county, and they're doing massively valuable work in plant science, but having a, a better train link to yeah. Cambridge makes enormous sense. But we can't make that decision ourselves. We have to plead to others, and they always say no. Yes. So nothing happens. Yes. And I just think, you know, you go back to the old Victorian cities, and there was a competitive um, uh, sort of democracy in those days. They all wanted to outdo each other, mm. and they built wonderful civic buildings and uh, 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 and, and, you know, amazing architecture in their cities. They were proud of their cities and they had the power to do it. Yeah. And I think too often we emasculate them uh, and centralise power in Westminster and they have no interest in what's going on in Holt or Cromer or anywhere else. Sure. I was just thinking when you said that, that your father must, would, would if were you alive, would probably be immensely proud that you were chairing the Science and Technology committee given his background would he do you think yeah i probably feel a bit of a fraud that <laughs> <laughs> well i think a lot of I us end up saying... feeling like frauds <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. yeah i uh, i think he would have been I, as minister in the business department as well as being minister for uh, employment i was trade policy minister minister responsible for royal mail and the post office minister for competition and for consumer affairs and for the Meteorological Office. So I visited the Meteorological Office, which is now in Exeter, um, and it was it, within my responsibility. And this was, uh, and they, they laid out on the table all of the papers that my dad had done oh. in their archives. Yeah. Uh, so that was wonderful. That was wonderful. Well, perhaps I could finish by saying that I think, I don't know, I, I hope I speak for everybody saying that we feel tremendously proud that you are our MP. Yeah. That you are known and can be seen from the talk today that you're a very caring person. You've got time for people, for, for everybody, and that, uh, you know, that you wear a political hat, but you also wear a human hat. And uh, we're very grateful to you for coming today to to share a bit of that with us. And, um, I really enjoyed it. Which you... <laughs> good. And, uh, this is a nice part of the job. <laughs> and uh, we wish you good luck moving ahead. And, uh, you know, Thank you. Uh, lots of us will do what we can to support. So, Thank you very much yeah. indeed. So we'll give... Uh, <laughs>